when you're Donald Trump, you would think based on prior performance that you could pack a, a stadium. You don't need a few hundred people in a state house. Like a few hundred people in a state house actually feels like a very establishment campaign. It kind of feels like the opposite of Trump. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, February 2nd. Today, Tara Palmieri is here to talk about Donald Trump's first campaign swing of the 2024 race. He went to New Hampshire and South Carolina, but the fireworks of campaigns gone by were nowhere to be seen. Tara and I discuss if Trump's low energy campaign is a deliberate move on his part or a reflection of Republican voters moving on. And later, Teddy Schleifer and Ben Landy discuss the rise and fall of political operative Gabe Bankman-Fried, SBF's younger brother, who was in charge of giving away Sam's crypto fortune until it turned out the money wasn't really his. We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Thursday, everybody. I'm joined today by Tara Palmieri to talk about many angles to Donald Trump's pseudo campaign that's unfolding right now. He went to New Hampshire and South Carolina last weekend. I don't know. Reading the clips and watching some of the videos felt a little meh. Tara, how you doing? I'm good. How are you, Peter? I'm good. Better than meh, I hope. <laughs> yeah, well, I want to ask you about that. Like, what is your initial take of Trump's little first campaign swing? I mean, he's done some videos. He did his announcement speech, obviously, in November. He uh, announced an NFT line, which got roundly mocked on the internet. But this was his real kind of going out to the primary states thing. What did you think about it? I thought it was very underwhelming. They had a few hundred people there. I don't know. If you compare it to like the primary night in 2016 in South Carolina, the place was on fire. You know yeah. what I mean? And there's a ton of excitement for Trump. And if you compare it to what you saw this weekend, it's a very stark difference. Uh, it just doesn't feel like there is that energy on the ground for Trump right now. And, you know, DeSantis is sometimes pulling ahead of him in South Carolina, sometimes behind him. It just seems like, yes, he had Lindsey Graham, the governor, but it's just felt very underwhelming. And these aren't rallies. I know rallies are expensive and they don't want to spend the money on them. But the precedent, he set it pretty high the first time around. So everything is going to feel a little bit dull. Whereas like, you know, someone like Nikki Haley, who just announced that she's running, she was having her first event in South Carolina, where she's from. She was governor there. And, you know, she's doing it with a venue of 1,500 people. And we'll see if she's able to fill it. And she's announcing it two weeks in advance, which makes me think that the leak was almost to, you know, get people to show up. But that's the problem. But when you're Donald Trump, you would think based on prior performance that you could pack a, a stadium. You don't need a few hundred people in a state house. Like a few hundred people in a state house actually feels like a very establishment campaign. It kind of feels like the opposite of Trump, frankly. I think that's so astute of you to say. I thought the same thing. But yeah, he, in New Hampshire, he spoke to the state Republican Party committee, talked yeah. a lot of inside baseball about how he's going to protect the New Hampshire primary. Then, yeah, in South Carolina, inside the state house, there were a bunch of like interviews outside the state house on Maine and Gervais in Columbia, like interviewing people lined up to go in. And it was just like, these are the diehards, and there are the diehards. But the thing you said about 2020 is so true. I, I literally was looking at Twitter and I was searching for video. And like on Twitter, a rally from South Carolina in 2020 popped up. And it was like 
holy shit, like the difference is like night and day right now. And beyond Nikki Haley mm-hmm. and beyond Ron DeSantis, like the underlying dynamics are really telling too. Like, yes, the crowds are smaller. Two, the very fact that he has to go to the primary states, you know, is a gesture toward the fact that like, oh, I'm going to have something of a competition here, I think. In 2020, South Carolina literally canceled its primary to protect Donald Trump. And then, yeah, I mean, like his tone and demeanor feels like he feels like the establishment. Like he was standing up in South Carolina with Henry McMaster, who's like the third term governor there, who's like been around South Carolina GOP politics since the Reagan years and Lindsey Graham, same deal. You know, those guys are as establishment as it gets at this point. And he's up there with them in the state house. It was just like kind of mind blowing. I just think the door is open to somebody who's not him at this point. I agree. I mean, and even the way he's like nervous about the party poobahs, like I feel like he never really cared about that before. Right. If anything, mm-hmm. he didn't care about the RNC, the committee men, all of it. When he came on and he barnstormed in, he was the outsider appealing to the grassroots and just getting the biggest crowds. And now it's like, no, we're having a few hundred people in a state house with all the party people. And yeah, it's so different. It is, he's like, he's playing the inside game. He's, he's talking about primaries. He's playing the inside game when he's the outside player. What's going yeah. on here? I remember back to uh, November, and we were talking about this then, but someone like Matt Schlapp or Jason Miller was on like Fox or Newsmax, and they were saying Trump this time is deliberately going to be a little more low-key, quote-unquote presidential, more serious. It did sort of feel like that, honestly, like he was trying to be a little more less of the flamboyant. Stately? Stately, perhaps, I guess. I mean, he'll never be that. But the volume was just turned down a little bit with Trump this time, this weekend. And it makes me think that's deliberate. Like, he's trying to do that. The other reason could be there's just not a lot of energy for him. And in fairness, we should say it's February of 2023. You know, the primaries won't be till a year from now. So maybe there will be rallies at some point and will be excitement. But it just feels like he'll have more of a fight on his hand this time. Well, they have to preserve money as well. He announced so early he can't be throwing these blockbuster rallies throughout a primary when there's no one else running against him and they're not raising money the same way. Small dollar donors are tapped. High dollar donors feel like they don't need to go golfing with Trump again for the hundredth time. There's like he's lost the exclusivity factor when it comes to like the top donors who also are like kind of having a little bit of a fantasy about DeSantis, the DeSantis, Um, (laughs) you know, so there's a bit of that as well. And they have to conserve their cash. They got to keep showing like, you know, their FEC reports for much longer than other Uh, candidates. And I think that they're keeping it low key in that sense. But also, maybe they can't get people to show up. I don't know. Yeah, I was saying this to John on the Media Monday podcast the other day, like the shtick gets old. It's just like this happened with Palin. I wrote about this for for Vanity Fair a couple years ago, like Palin was the biggest story in the entire freaking world Mm. from 2008 to 2011. She was Fox News contributor. She was going around for president people just kind of slowly got tired of it and then new faces popped up. And like, I just, you just kind of feel like that's happening in real time with Donald Trump. Like even Republicans feel like they want to turn the page. Um, I do want to point out though, the Bulwark did a poll this week and the Bulwark is obviously like a never Trump media company, but they got Whit Ayers to do the poll. He's a good Republican pollster. In a head-to-head matchup, they found DeSantis beats Trump 52 to 30% among Republican primary voters. National poll, early those are the caveats. National. If you start wow. to throw in other candidates, DeSantis goes down a little bit, still beats Trump. 
in a 10-candidate field with Nikki Haley and Mike Pence, DeSantis still beats Trump. But throughout all of these scenarios and all these dynamics, a head-to-head matchup, three or four candidates, 10 candidates, Trump has a very steady 30%. And that's either... Mm. Good or bad, depending on how you look at it. It's bad because Trump's a former president who's supposed to control the party and only 30% of the people want him. The silver lining to that, though, is he's got 30% diehards who are with him, ride or die, no matter what. And that's kind of how he won in 2016. So, you know, if you're a never Trump person, you hope it's just a head to head with DeSantis and DeSantis can live up to the hype and beat him. But, you know, there are the diehards, but it does feel like the rest of the party is kind of looking around for other options. The other options just have to show up and prove that they can (laughs) run for president against Donald Trump. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think Trump is inviting these people. He wants them to run. He wants to split the field. What would be great is if Nikki Haley and Tim Scott got in the ring together in South Carolina, split some of the vote up there. Then it's really a match between him and DeSantis. And maybe he gets to beat DeSantis in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. He needs more people. Like, I mean, obviously, Nikki Haley's not a threat to him. I think I saw her poll at 8% in the New Hampshire primary, according to a UNH poll from last week. better than I thought. Yeah, actually, I was surprisingly high um, in that poll. DeSantis beats Trump by 12 points in New Hampshire among primary voters. But, you know, I guess he's just not really threatened. I think he welcomes someone into the ring because he's much stronger where he has somewhere to punch and someone to land it on. I'm kind of excited to see this. But he so far, I mean, okay, it's Wednesday night, 6 p.m. He so far has not said anything to her. And she's her team has leaked the fact that she's going to announce at an event on February 15th, I believe, or 16th. So... Maybe he's working up his sauce. And the problem is you, you throw that first punch, everyone's going to be like, uh, like it was like when DeSanctimonious came out and everyone was like, really? That's what you got? Hey, last thing before I let you go, Tara, you kind of blurbed about this in The Best and the Brightest, which is our DC politics-focused newsletter you should all be subscribing to. You wrote about Kellyanne Conway's role, non-role in this sort of nascent Trump campaign. She's obviously... Household name at this point, unfortunately, because of her days advising Trump, she's turned into she's an like SNL Cher. character. You only need Kellyanne. You don't need to say a last name: Madonna, Cher, <laughs> Kellyanne. Right. You don't need to say Conway. There are no other so. Kellyannes. You're totally right. So she's she's a paid Fox <laughs> contributor. You know, obviously, you know what? In politics, this kind of isn't necessarily a neg, but she's an opportunist <laughs> uh, and wants to maintain whatever. Uh, influence and power she has. And so she's sort of semi-flacking for Trump on Fox. Is she going to have a role on this Trump campaign or is she going to stick to the green room? I don't believe that she will be on the Trump campaign. That won't be happening. And there were a lot of reports that she would, but it looks like it's not going to happen. She's sticking to the green room, which I think is actually more valuable for Trump anyway. And I mean, she can't be an official surrogate within her Fox News like role. So she's going to like call shots and stuff. But if there's anything we know about Trump, is like if she criticizes him or his campaign strategy on TV, she has way more power than being his campaign manager because he's going to listen to the person on TV and give more power to that. So it's kind of like the best best case scenario for her. Still an advisor, probably taken even more seriously. The power sharing structure in the campaign, it's pretty much flat. There's no hierarchy because God knows it doesn't matter anyway. He'll just call anyone and the intern up, whatever. But the truth is, like, there's there's never a hierarchy or organizational structure with, with Trump. So why even dabble? I do not believe she will join the campaign. And um, I think it's going to be interesting. I mean, maybe Kellyanne ends up on the DeSantis train in the end if he's the nominee. Couldn't you just see that? If that's where... She used the, to be with Ted Cruz. That's if that's the where the momentum is moving, I mean, people like 
Kellyanne will be remorse to the shark for sure. Tara, thank you so much for your insight. I can't wait to talk more about the Trump campaign with you anytime you want. Cheers. When we come back, Teddy Schleifer talks to Ben Landy about Sam Bankman-Fried's kid brother. Welcome back, everybody. I'm here with Teddy Schleifer to talk about everybody's favorite financial fraud icon, SBF, and uh, and more specifically, his brother, Gabe Bankman-Fried. Teddy, you just published a fantastic bit of reporting about how GBF rode his brother's coattails to become a major power broker in Washington at like 26, 27 years old. I mean, very young. It's kind of a perfect metaphor for how wealth creates these nepotistic ripple effects in Washington. But I'm curious, what was it about Gabe specifically that captured your interest in doing this reporting? So you're correct. I mean, obviously, uh, you can look at any industry, David Ellison in Hollywood or Chelsea Clinton in politics. I mean, when, when, you're, when you're tied to power through kin, you become powerful in your own right. It's not necessarily to diminish people's merits or personal attributes that are appealing, but at the end of the day, you are who you are. And Gabe Bankman-Fried is who he is because of Sam Bankman-Fried. Um, so GBF, yes, he did have the initialism uh, status, rose to become a pretty significant power player in Washington. I don't want to overstate it. Like It's not like he was you know, the head of the Chamber of Commerce, but he was sort of beginning to become a powerful person in Washington. You know, there were tons of Democrats who, who saw Sam Bankman-Fried as the next big player in their party and in progressive advocacy and super PAC world and even in industries like media. And Gabe was the gatekeeper, the conduit to that fortune. So like a lot of people knew who this guy was, even though on paper, um, this is a guy who is like 25, 26 years old. I think he graduated from college in 2017. He was a novice kind of operative. He had spent two years as a legislative correspondent on Capitol Hill, which is like a job where you like mostly take care of you know, correspondence with constituents and stuff like that. Yeah, it's like literally like the mailroom job if you work at a talent agency. Right, right, right. Um, but he was born uh, the son of this person named Barbara Freed, who is Sam's mom, who, you know, was starting a Democratic donor advisory group. And Gabe sort of was able to get involved with that really early on, which definitely helped his own career. And around 2019, I would say, uh, Sam Bankman Freed, his older brother, who was kind of his best friend growing up, Sam became very, very wealthy and, you know, very, very powerful. And then Gabe is in DC and is able to start this advocacy or this lobbying group on pandemic prevention. Obviously, if he didn't have the money from Sam, that group doesn't get started up. And the last name, Bankman Freed, becomes a huge asset. Like people will take meetings with Gabe. You don't he doesn't need to say, I'm Sam Bankman Freed's brother, or, you know, do you know how much money I have access to? It's obvious. Um, and Gabe suddenly becomes a big player. And that's not to say that Gabe would not have been successful if he was Joe Schmo or, you know, but Gabe understood, like, obviously, that the speed of his rise was only possible because of Sam. And now the speed of Gabe's fall, which is really what um, the story we published this week reflects on, is also due entirely to Sam. And, you know, if you live by Big Brother, you, you die by Big Brother. And that's sort of what our story this week is all about. You reported this week that the new management at FTX, which is working through this bankruptcy proceeding, wants to subpoena Gabe 
for any information about involvement he had with FTX. And also, it looks like they're they're looking at foundations and political projects that might be connected to the Bankman-Fried family. That includes Guarding Against Pandemics, the lobbying shop that you mentioned. Do you have any sense of how Gabe perceives his legal exposure to the FTX scandal? And, and is he worried? Yeah. So so this has always been a, like a hypothetical, right? Like, will Gabe face any legal consequences? Has always has been something I've thought about since early November when Sam began his implosion. But it's something that really became less of a hypothetical in mid-December when Sam was arrested, indicted, and the eighth count of lengthy list of crimes that Sam is alleged to have committed revolved around campaign finance. Um, and Gabe Bankman-Fried was sort of the top of that pyramid or the top of that campaign finance portfolio because he was Sam's principal political advisor. So the idea that Gabe would need to lawyer up or would need to you know, fend off legal scrutiny was no longer hypothetical. Like It seemed very plausible to me. And last week, and the reason why we decided to write this story now was because last week, FTX said that Gabe had been uncooperative with their own investigation. Now, now FTX is not the Department of Justice. The FTX does not have the ability to imprison somebody, for instance. But FTX is basically trying to get Gabe to cooperate along with a whole host of others. And it does not seem ridiculous to wonder whether or not DOJ is trying to get Gabe to cooperate, whether or not Gabe has legitimate legal exposure or not. Like this is sort of a campaign that DOJ is waging and maybe they can squeeze Gabe, you know, on campaign finance things just to make Sam's life more difficult. So these are all possibilities. Now, whether or not Gabe himself is worried, you know, I report in the story that Gabe is like kind of been presenting publicly or semi-publicly to friends and contacts that like it's all good. Like there's almost a lightheartedness to how Gabe is approaching this. Like he jokes about some of this stuff occasionally. He been playing video games and visiting friends and kind of there's like a shaka level of confidence that he's been presenting. But but privately, I mean, you know, I find it hard to believe that he is not taking this seriously um, as he should. Gabe himself is a Democrat. But he placed a lot of emphasis in his political operation on cultivating relationships with Republicans. Yes. Same as his, his older brother, by the way, Sam Bankman-Fried, also a Democrat who, who was not um, opposed to reaching across the aisle to build those relationships. Do you think that that political capital survives this scandal whatsoever? Or, or is Gabe essentially now persona non grata in D.C.? I kind of think he's screwed long term career wise. You know, I've talked about this before on this podcast and in previous stories that like whether or not Sam is found guilty or not, of course, matters. And whether or not Gabe faces legal exposure or not, of course, matters. But like Gabe's last name is his last name. And sort of a shame if he is found to have done nothing wrong. And, you know, let's keep open the possibility that maybe he did oversee a massive campaign finance violation scheme. But if he is found to, you know, have just been the brother of this criminal or alleged criminal, like whether or not Sam is convicted, I don't know if that really matters to Gabe from a reputational standpoint. I mean, Gabe is is 27 or 28 years old at this point, And, you know, he had his whole life ahead of him. And there are obviously a lot of people in life who are born into significantly less privilege than Gabe. So like the violin is small and this is one person's life, but he feels and or probably will feel that he got the short end of the stick here. And, you know, Sam kind of blew up his career. Life is long, you know, could I see Gabe in 20 years having a totally normal life working at General Motors as an executive and saying like, oh yeah, my brother was a crazy guy and, you know, I just happen to have his last name. Sure, I could see that. But like his career as a public facing person 
is forever going to be marred by the Bankman Freed last name, which is, you know, it would be great if his last name was Smith, right? And it was something very generic. But obviously, if you met this guy uh, at a wedding in 10 years, you'd be like, Bankman Freed, are you related to Sam? And who knows? Like, there maybe there's a way that Gabe can rescue his reputation. But that's that's the sad part of the story is I've written a lot about Sam's parents, right? Barbara Freed and Joe Bankman. And obviously, their lives have been capsized by this whole thing. But the difference is that like they're in their 50s or 60s and they've had, you know, decades of being successful and, you know, they're tenured professors at Stanford Law and they have money and they've had things on their deathbed to reflect on about the good old days. Like Gabe's going to have to live with this for 50, 60 years and it's going to be obviously a, a trying experience for him regardless of how whether or not Sam is convicted or not. I mean, the other difference is that the Bankman Freed parents, Barbara and Joe, did have varying levels of involvement at FTX. Joe Bankman, in particular, right. was pretty deeply involved at that company, and and you know one could argue potentially should have known better. I know it's funny, like maybe I'm just more cynical than you, but my hunch is that if Gabe is smart and talented, his career is going to survive this. The, the Bankman Freed family, they mm. do have friends still. Gabe still has his connections, and, I, and memories are short. You know, it's possible. We could see him go back to finance. You know, you mentioned he, he had a, a stint at Jane Street Capital, which was the hedge fund that his brother also worked at. Yeah, very, very, very briefly. But yes, yes. Yeah, briefly. It, it is hard to imagine him going back and being the head of a policy organization where he has to be out in front raising money. But at the same time, you know, Washington is full of various people who have their own scandal adjacencies who have been able to move past that. Yeah, look, and it's a, it's an interesting, you know, to even bring it to, you know, five million thousand feet question. I mean, it's an interesting question about like whether or not people should be responsible for the sins of their relatives, right? Regardless, though, like I do feel that there will be some consequences for him, whether that's fair or not. But the best case scenario here for Gabe, right, is it's shown that he did nothing wrong and that he knew nothing about this. And maybe even that Sam is acquitted because you would worry for, you know, for Gabe at, at age 27, 28, that like, is the first line of his obituary already written? Gabe and I are about the same age. And, uh, you know, I, I would feel personally that that would be an enormous like albatross just to just to live with this. But such is life. Yeah. And who knows? Maybe it turns out that um, Gabe has uh, stacks of Bitcoin ledgers hidden in his basement or something. <laughs> but, um, but look, if sure. that happens, we'll, we'll Teddy will have you back on to uh, to talk yeah. about it. As always, thanks us, for coming by. You bet. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Hold up. 